Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome to the party, listeners. I'm Patch. And with me, ready to take down Maniacal Thieves, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker! No, 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 no. What? We do not want the magical E on our podcast. That's that's that's, that's what they say in this movie. They say a lot of things in this movie that we're probably not going to quote. Oh, <laughs> we'll just have man. to leave it up to the listeners to watch the movie, enjoy vicariously through the characters, and then and, and the conversation as well. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, well, it's donor pick time. And this month, our faithful patrons have selected a winner in the form of 1988's Die Hard. Yes, we said 1988, so consider the spoiler embargo lifted as we get ready to talk about this action-adventure roller coaster ride in detail, setting it up for one-word takeaways. Aaron, kick us off. All right, well, my one-word takeaway is balance, or in the case of Hans, a lack thereof. Right. I'm on fire today, Patrick. I'm on fire. That's why I'm wearing a blanket because I'm, I'm being because I'm on fire. They're <laughs> anyway. trying to put you out. They're trying to put you out. When I think of Die Hard, I think of how unique it is in the action genre, and I almost chose the word formula for this movie because it really did set in motion a style of film that we have seen replicated to varying degrees of success for several decades now. But the reason that the formula works so successfully here is, in my opinion, all because of balance. There are plenty of great action set pieces in mediocre movies, and likewise, there are some quite hilarious comedy bits in others. And a few even have solid drama and heart, even though that's much more of a rarity. And then Die Hard comes along and blows everything up, literally, by being a perfect mixture of all of those elements. It is never too much action at once. It's never over the top in its humor to where it loses your attention. And the drama gets us invested in the characters in a way that I think so very few action films from that era were ever able to do. I could have, I think, taken the easy way out and just picked the word perfect for this movie because I really think that it is that also. But I think balance sums it up well. Absolutely, it does. And I agree. I think it has all of those things in almost perfection uh, when it comes to a movie like this. The through line for me, though, is what my one word takeaway really sums up, and that's arrogance. I think that I want to I want to say that I almost used this word in a previous episode. I think subconsciously we try not to use the same one word takeaway more than once. But of course, this is probably not going to happen because we just have a limited palette when it comes to the words we use. I think I say uh, articulate at least once on every episode. So there it is. But when I think of the word arrogance, I think of the fact that our two main character, John and Hans are both really just fulfilling this role of arrogance in their own way. John is this cowboy protagonist and Hans as this just really superficial, but smart over the top, but kind of likable in some ways, arrogant antagonist and the way in which they operate within the narrative, within the story, both entertains us as an audience, but allows us a level of believability within this world of just craziness. I mean, Die Hard, if you look at it as a whole, this is something that you would say, no, that would never happen in today's culture, it might actually happen. But in 1988, this pioneered what the big action blockbuster was supposed to look like. I mean, movies that came along after it that had the success that they did took their cues from Die Hard. But the thing that drove this, the thing that I believe drives this whole narrative is how arrogance plays back and forth between these two characters and the support system that they have on either side of the fence here. I think what it does for me personally is it allows me to enjoy it, enjoy the arrogance, and to see how they use that kind of drive as a chess piece in order to get to their end game. 
what Die Hard does more than anything else is I think it brings both sides together and it says, you know what? Arrogance can be good. Arrogance can be bad. But we're not here to try to decide whether it should be one or the other. We're just here to let it entertain us in a way that says this could be any one of us. We could be Hans. We could be John. And Die Hard just completely puts the exclamation point on that and saying, pick your side and enjoy the ride. Nice rhyme. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't write that down. That just kind of came to me. Wow, weird. (laughs) (laughs) We've talked about the fact that Die Hard is this template, but sometimes a template tends to kind of lose its, I don't know, interest, lose its impact when it comes to the things that come after it. I know that for me personally, I can respect a movie like Seven Samurai, but I will probably not watch it more than once or twice in my lifetime because it just doesn't appeal to me. But that doesn't mean that it hasn't had an influence on things like Mag 7 or other movies that take what it brings and um, and push it forward. Die Hard does the same thing, but yet after... 30 plus years, it still remains one of the greatest action movies of all time, subjectively speaking. I mean, you talk to most people and they're like, yeah, Die Hard. It's the best. It's the best Christmas movie. It's one of the best action movies. You know, it's it's this kind of thing where if you dispute it, you're probably going to get stones thrown at you digitally or physically, depending on who you're around and how close you are to a Die Hard fan what makes this movie so revered even after 30 plus years beyond just the fact that it's just, it it is a template for the things that came after it. Well, it's got amazing action sequences and it's got incredibly memorable dialogue and moments, big action movies for them to be elevated to a point of this sort of fandom. They have to be memorable they have to have a talking point, something for people to go to the water cooler and say, do you remember when that happened in that movie? It has to stick out. And Die Hard has quite a few of those. But I think that some of the reasons that it's so revered are actually kind of beneath the surface and maybe things that people don't even realize at first glance, if you asked people, why do you love Die Hard? And they just shot off from the hip and say, I love the characters and I love the action and the comedy. Very generically, I think what they're really getting at is a couple of different things. One, I was watching before the movie, there is a Netflix series out right now called The Movies That Made Us. And one of their very few episodes is on Die Hard. And I wouldn't say it's the best piece of TV I've ever seen, but it is certainly informative. And I learned quite a few things about the filming of the movie that were incredible. You know, for example, that the part was originally offered to like eight people before Bruce Willis. He was definitely nowhere in the ballpark of being the first choice. It was actually offered because of contractual obligations to Frank Sinatra first, Patrick. Die Hard with Frank Sinatra. That No, no. That doesn't work, right? No. Um, no. Clint Eastwood turned it down, saying he didn't get the humor, which I find absolutely hilarious just thinking about that. Stallone turned it down. Arnold turned it down. Richard Gere turned it down. Can't see him as an action hero. He's definitely got that suave you know, style to him from his era, but man. And then Burt Reynolds also turned it down. Maybe out of all those guys possibly the best or closest match to what Bruce Willis ended up bringing. But I just, I, I can't even imagine this movie with any of those other guys. So I learned all kinds of little stuff like that. But one of the things was one of the, the people who worked on the film was saying, it's not just about stunts. It's about people with emotions and humanity. And that comes out in this movie. It is about relationships that are driving the action that is taking place. This is not a man who is operating in some foreign country, in some foreign jungle for his country because he signed on a dotted line to do a thing or he has a toxic desire for violence. That's not Bruce Willis. That's what separates 
John McClane. He's not this picture of toxic masculinity that we kind of associated with action heroes of the day. He is a relatable, regular guy. And one of the things that I think makes him so relatable is he has fear. Patrick, he starts off this movie literally being afraid of flying. The, the opening sequence is him showing a fear. Later on, we get to see him taking the advice. He has his shoes off. You, you know, you see this rough, hardened cop playing with his toes in the carpet. He spends most of this movie hiding, not running at the bad guys full frontal, right? He's not the picture of the action star. So it's unique in that way. And then I also think one of the other things that helps make it really stand above that people don't even necessarily realize it's happening is the screenplay. And I don't think most people would point to the screenplay and be like, oh, Die Hard has the best script ever. Yeah, they're going to say it has great jokes. But one thing that I noted this viewing was how meticulously placed bits of information were early on in scenes to set you up for what you needed to know. This can be a really fine line to walk for movies. You can totally botch this and it makes future moments kind of lose their impact very easily. But an example is Mr. Takagi when he meets John and John is complimenting him on the tower and he just casually says something about how there's still a couple of floors to go that are unfinished at the top. That is critical information for later. And we don't get this weird hyper-focused moment where John's like pause on John McClane stopping to realize that he needs to recommend remember that just in case something goes down but later you know hey he has that information and so it makes sense when he's making these decisions because he was listening and you were listening as an audience member and I, so I think for me Patrick it's like this combination of like these really subtle qualities that are absolutely expertly done that people don't even necessarily realize they're watching because of how much fun they're having with the comedy and the action. But that's what makes it special. It's very much a layered movie. And I look at this viewing as a way to kind of dive deep into that. You're right. It has that everyman protagonist in John McClane. And there are some things that are sort of subtly obvious about reinforcing that he isn't everyman, that he has fear, that he could be just like us. The fact that he's walking around most of the movie in his bare feet, I think, is a a visual testament to the fact that he's vulnerable. If we didn't want to believe he was vulnerable, that's a fantastic kind of pin in that to say, hey, yes, he is. He's vulnerable enough that he has to go without shoes for several hours in this shoot 'em up action movie. Uh, several hours, obviously, over the course of like the narrative, not the movie itself, but you also, on the other end of that, have a movie whose antagonist is very much kind of acting out of a meta nature when it comes to what we've expected as an audience. There's a great, great moment where Hans is essentially talking to the cops or the FBI, and he starts telling them, okay, in order to get what you want, I need you to free these people and these people and these people. And he's, he's spouting off all of these organizations that he's read about in the newspaper. And at one point he looks at one of his cronies and he says, I don't know. I, I heard about him in the news yesterday because he's very aware of the fact that this is the world that makes sense to the people who are trying to stop him. And he knows that. And so he plays into that hand. He says, look, they're not going to believe that I'm just out to get a lot of money. And it's almost like our reaction to Knives Out where, you know, the answer is like right there in front of you, yet we have to be walked into it to realize, oh, yeah, he was telling us the truth in the very beginning. He's not really a terrorist, but he has to play the terrorist in order to get what he wants, even though he's not a terrorist. And Having that, I think, is an incredibly genius way to script the story because it allows us as an audience to realize we're going to kind of flip the script on action movies. Die Hard is going to tell you one thing. It's going to make you believe, oh, yeah, this is the formula. This is what we're used to. No, this is a new formula. 
And it really isn't replicated that much, at least not in a completion that Die Hard is. I mean, we get snippets of that in other movies that come later. But I, I love that a movie like this understands the genre that it's living in in order to play in that sandbox a little bit. The fact that we get a a guy like Hans who is inviting the FBI. He said, this is going to be part of what we deal with. We're going to be on the news. We knew this was coming. And it's as if he wasn't inviting it just so he could have fun with it. He just said, this is what we're used to. This is what normally comes. So we just need to be ready for it. He's always one step ahead of the cops. He's always one step ahead of those that are trying to come after him. John McClane comes in and he's flipping the script on Han. So it's almost like this flipping of flipping of flipping. So we have our standard movie that we're used to. Hans flips the antagonistic role, but then he runs into a protagonist who flips the script on him and says, the hero that you expect me to be, I'm not your John Wayne. I, I'm, I, I'm, just call me, just call me Roy. I'm Roy Rogers because I like the, I like the shirts. So all of the things about Die Hard, I think are really wrapped up in this idea that it's not expected. And I think that's what makes it such a great rewatchable movie. Even though you know it's going to happen, you love experiencing the fact that this is not what you normally get in an action movie. And at the same time, it is. There's enough familiarity to it that keeps you interested. Everything is, is great with the jokes and all that. But as you said, Aaron, you wouldn't expect some of the drama. You wouldn't expect some of the emotional connection. You wouldn't expect to have somebody like Bruce Willis. It makes perfect sense that he was like the seventh person chosen. Because this is who John McClane is. John McClane is a New York cop, completely out of his element. And he's just gunslinging at this point. He's always on the run in this thing. There's rarely a moment where he is attacking. It's because it's not because he can't do it. It's because he's not an L.A. cop. He's in a he's in a, a foreign country, essentially. He's on the other side of the country trying to make amends with his wife. And he's trying smart. To, and he is he's smart. smart. That's the thing, too, is he's not going to run and jump into a situation without first figuring out what he's up against. And what we're used to is the hero who takes down unsurmountable odds. John Wayne is much more like your spy who is going to pick people off one by one in the shadows. Not John Wayne. John McClane. See, dadgummit. You were talking about cowboys and got me confused. <laughs> Well, one of the things that I like about John McClane is that he has a connection to someone else. And this is another difference with your action movie star. I mean, take James Bond, for instance. He doesn't have an outright emotional connection with anybody. He uses people, essentially, to make sure that the job gets done. And that's appealing. It's very familiar. John McClane, though, from the very beginning, is making connections with people in unintentionally and intentionally. He's trying to get this reconciliation with his wife. Or maybe it's not reconciliation. Maybe it's just trying to find amicability on Christmas. Regardless, he has a stake in the game that goes beyond just his personal survival. He doesn't necessarily care about the people in the building, although they are important. Had he not been connected with someone in the building, his wife, I think the movie would take an entirely different tone and it wouldn't be as exciting or as connective as what we have right now with this one, with this edition. Yeah, you know... It it does give it that weight and those stakes that you and I are both so fond of because he's got something to lose instead of just his goodness in general for wanting to save anybody in harm, which he does. And he displays that several times. For goodness sakes, he tries to save Ellis, and Ellis is as douchebaggy as they come, but that doesn't mean that he deserves to die, right? <laughs> and he tries to tell the stupid FBI, get back, get back, or the cops, I think it's the cops at that point, you know, get your stupid trucks back, like, get your people out of there, they're gonna blow you to bits, he's trying to save everybody's lives, but yeah, it's definitely Holly that 
is going to, I think, make him a little less reckless in a sense. I think it, it urges him to be cautious and urges him to be safer because he can't risk not being able to save her. There is a moment that I think is so crucial, and that is their first meeting or their first time together. It was almost my connecting point because I love how it went down where is after he's come and seen her at the party and they have a couple minutes of alone time. And it's just a really beautiful, sweet moment. And she's like, you know, you got anywhere to stay? And oh, I'm staying out in Pomona or something. And she's like, oh, that's too far of a drive. You know, why don't you just stay at the house? You know, like we can, we can pull the kids would love to see you. And you can see it on his face. He's like, yeah, really? Really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that it, it goes just like most people have these conversations. Maybe not about being separated, but about certain things like this. And, oh, no, I don't want to impose. And then like, oh, but you think they would? Oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be kind of nice. Are you sure? And then there's a pause and they are smiling, Patrick. And you feel like, okay, this is great. Like he's, we know he's here to reconcile. He's told Argyle as much. He's immediately personable as well. That's another quality about John McClane. Like people are gravitating towards him and his magnetic personality even though he's so brash for some reason but like argyle is like just opens up to him and tries to get him to talk um but after this moment where they're both seemingly kind of gonna figure it out and make this plan john comes back at her and he's like so i see you're not going by holly mclean <laughs> anymore poking the bear man and dude poking when he did it i was just like i literally this viewing i was like no john no because dude this is a realistic dramatic moment in an action movie we don't normally see this this is a family drama event that everyday couples can relate to i assure you i know i have done this many times been in relationships where we have been kind of getting over a fight and you just, you got to poke the bear. You, you got to get that last word in. You just, you can't let it go even for a couple minutes and you undo all of that goodness that kind of just came out of that relationship. And it's so realistic to me. And I, and I think for me, especially this viewing that really sold me on how big of an importance there is on them giving us characters within this crazy, unbelievable set piece that we could root for because we feel like they're us. Absolutely. He's called a cowboy at one point by Hans Gruber. And, you know, we joked, he jokes about the fact that he's not, he doesn't want to be called John Wayne when he's asked his name. He'd rather be called Roy Rogers. And I think part of that is due to the fact that that scene that you talked about that you just mentioned is very much showing that he is imperfect, that he's not a superhero, that he's going to make mistakes. And throughout the movie, he's not a bumbling idiot by any means. He is a reactive guy and someone who's trying to adapt to his surroundings. But I think that it allows us to understand that this is someone who could and does exist in our world. It's different than Commando or Terminator or these high-flying superheroic action stars. We go into those movies believing the unbelievable, suspending our disbelief. Die Hard, in a sense, challenges that by putting us in a kind of over-the-top environment, but gives us a character like John McClane to connect to in a way that says, you know what, if I had the history that he did, if I had his background, maybe I could be a person that would be in this situation. Maybe I'd get my head blown off, or maybe I'd be the one blowing other people's heads off. The fact that he tries to get Ellis out of trouble <laughs> is something that you wouldn't hear from another action star. The fact that Bruce Willis wasn't necessarily an established action star, I think gives him further credibility to that everyman persona. And when you see 
him being compared to a cowboy, there are some traits in that he is a gunslinger. He knows how to fire off around. He he's very smart, but at the same time, he's not a cowboy because he's not a loner. He has dependencies, not just with his wife, but with his kids. What I also like about Die Hard is that it doesn't overly emphasize those things. She's not his mission. Like, obviously we know in the back of our heads that he wants her to be safe, but particularly on this viewing, I didn't think of him as saying his whole idea is to rescue Holly. No, he's trying to stop the bad guy. And his motive, his anchor, is Holly. But I think that he would be maybe not as motivated, but I think his I think his motives would be similar if he were put in that situation where he was trying to get the bad guys, essentially. And and to me that makes him more appealing as a hero because those are things that I think we as an audience could relate to that we have to have something that motivates us, but we also have to be able to act on that motivation to get it to its fitting end. And that fitting end of course comes from the aforementioned Hans Gruber and his fall from grace from the 33rd floor of the building. Yes, 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 he does. The late Alan Rickman, who plays Hans Gruber, is such a great antagonist for John McClane. And again, it's that arrogance that I think is is the driving force there. But he definitely differs from that action-adventure antagonist. He's not the mustache-twirling guy. But he's also not overly smart. I mean, he's smart, but he's not a genius. I think... When I look at him, I think he's this kind of balance of both those two. He's not one extreme or the other. He sits in the middle where he kind of works with what he's got. You know, he adapts to a situation. He has different henchmen that he allows to do his dirty work. But at the same time, I kind of see him as a manager where he's sitting in this kind of high castle, the executive office, calling the shots. But I'd like to believe it's because he can't necessarily do it himself. What I also enjoy, Aaron, is the fact that he doesn't hold back. He counts to three or counts to five. And when he doesn't get the codes, boom, dead body. He has no problem hesitating to make the kill, which is different from what we see in typical action antiheroes. Um, Dr. No, I think is, no, I'm sorry, it's Goldfinger that I think really, uh, overly emphasizes that where <laughs> Bond says, do you want me to talk? And he goes, no, I want you to die. But he leaves him on the, on the table with this laser that's just slowly coming towards him. That's the formula for, um, any kind of antagonist. They tell you their plan and they let you die a slow death potentially. Hans doesn't do that. He says, give me what I need. Okay. You can't fine. Boom, you're dead. Anybody else? And to me, that keeps me on my toes. And I would think anybody watching this for the first time, that would surprise them, even for a movie that's 30 years old, is to have a villain who you don't know what's going to happen. It wouldn't have surprised me if he had killed off John's wife early in the movie. Would have changed the motivation completely, but it wouldn't surprise me because of the actions that we saw early on. I love, love, love his entrance off the elevator with his henchman. He looks so calm, cool, and collected. And we haven't even heard a word out of his mouth yet. And I love the British accent. I mean, everything just comes together with him as one of the more perfect villains of the action genre. Oh, yeah. Easily he is. You're so right on everything you said. I love what you're pointing out about his non-hesitation to follow through in his violence. And... He does it to make a point. He does it to keep his word. There's another great example of that when in that scene that I was just talking about where the armored vehicles are coming up and he's like, hit them again. And they're like, hit him, hit them again. Right. And he's doing it to instill fear in that moment. He is literally a terrorist, like by definition, because that is what he is doing is creating terror. And he's just he is a genius i think you know i call him calculated he's got this 
insanely detailed plan. And right from the start, when they come in the building, like you're talking about, it's this awesome execution of precision. I love watching it. It was one of the most fun parts of this movie is them coming in, talking about football, jumping over the, you know, killing the security guard. I'm in. And like, he's using football analogies. Like the team, everybody has such great personalities. They all go to do their thing. Hans has everything worked out to the letter. Every possibility is covered except for this one random crazy dude running around in the, you know, vents (laughs) trying to ruin his plans. And he's got it all figured out. And even when he is caught off guard to the point of being captured or run into by McLean, he's quick enough on his feet to figure out a name to use and to change his accent and stuff. And I love it because it creates this awesome game of cat and mouse because we know at this point when they meet that McLean has some smarts to him that he's very observant as well. We've watched him be that way the whole movie. And so you have Hans doing the same thing and they're like, you just don't know who's going to get the upper hand. So you you are, you're always questioning. I, I, I agree with you. I would not have been surprised based on the movie I was watching if he was to kill off Holly, because if that was the thing that he needed to do in order to progress toward his goal, I have no doubt in my mind that he would do it. He wasn't keeping her alive out of some sense of um, concern or, you know, favorability because she's a nice woman. Like that's not Han's thing, but yet he'll do it all with his Italian suit or whatever it was. And with a, you know, just a smirk on his face and a clean cut look and not think twice about it. He is amazing. And you know, it's a re- there's a reason that, it set off this entire career of us kind of falling in love with him in different villainous roles. I think one of the things I love about understanding movies, particularly when you mentioned uh, the movies that made us finding out some of the backstory is it gives some real tangible, tangible enjoyment to why we enjoy a movie even more. I, as a, just a side note, I watched the episode on Home Alone and it immediately vaulted to one of my favorite Christmas movies, if not my favorite Christmas movie, because of all the love that goes into it. And I was reading something on IMDb about Alan Rickman and how the character of Hans is the complete opposite of who he was. I think it was the production designer or somebody that would have lunch with him every day. And she said he is he would just he was just the nicest guy. Very, very cordial, very polite, uh, very soft spoken and, and very inviting in terms of just being friendly with, with people. Um, I love Alan Rickman. I, I miss him. I think he is a, a fantastic actor. I, I fell in love with him in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and seeing him in the role of Snape, I think just solidified him as one of my favorite movie actors. And so his passing is definitely one that's, that's missed and, I think this was his first feature, American feature. I want to say I read that, which catapulted him to like, hey, this guy could do a lot. And of course he did. And I'm glad that we got what we did. Um, so, so yay. We miss you, Alan. You mentioned earlier about the humor in this movie. And a movie is definitely memorable when you can quote most lines around the water cooler. Uh, to your friends. I, I love doing that. You and I, obviously, we do it a lot. But I think that a good script isn't just laying jokes down for the sake of being funny. I think that a good script uses jokes to help progress a story, to help kind of tell a deeper narrative. I'm not saying that every joke has to have a symbol behind it necessarily. I mean, some you know, fart jokes are fart jokes, whether you whether you like them or not. And they have their purpose. But I don't know that humor is just in this movie for comic relief. I think it it gives us a break from the violence, which I think is pretty necessary to enjoy an action movie like this. Um, we talk about when we mention Michael Bay, how he uses a lot of stuff, just a lot over and over and over. And for me, one of the things I struggle with with him is the fact that I don't feel like I get a break. 
I don't get a chance to breathe. I don't get a chance to enjoy the tension by having a laugh here and there. And there is something to be said about beats in a story and being able to take a mental breath, take an emotional breath. Um, it's why my wife and I enjoy a show like This Is Us because you have a lot of drama that's peppered with moments of humor that allow us to laugh when we're in the midst of crying to help kind of ease the tension there. And that kind of has the potential to get lost in a movie like Die Hard because we do focus on all the big action and all the jokes, but we, we could fail to see how they work together and how after a big action sequence, we have a funny conversation with John and Hans in a way that allows us to laugh a little bit and kind of say, okay, there's a, there's a breath there. I can take that. I appreciate that. I think it's a deliberate mechanical technique that's used. And I think it says a lot about the value of the screenplay that can be undervalued because of the fact that it exists in an action movie. Yeah. The the humor is spot on. And like you said, it's, not always just played for laughs. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there are definite jokes written into the script. Things like, gonna need some more FBI guys, I guess, that you know is written to make you laugh your butt off, but also is written with this darkly comic tone because you all think, man, that sounds like something a guy who's really salty about the FBI coming in and taking his job might say. Um, and... That happens frequently throughout this. There's very realistic dialogue, in my opinion. It feels like some of the things that get thrown around here are little jabs and prods that people would actually say. You know, when John is trying to get the police to come and after he pulls the fire alarm, right? And he's like talking to this stupid idiot on 911 and She's like, attention, whoever this is, this channel is reserved for emergencies only. <laughs> and he tries, man. He tries. And that's what makes it funny what he ultimately says. No effing, you know, crap. Lady, does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? Like, <laughs> that's, we laugh. That's hilarious. But it's not a joke that has a setup and a punchline, right? It is in the flow of the narrative. And it's funny because of how, again, darkly awful what is happening to him is, but it also is something we can relate to and we can feel is very potentially realistic. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's just a really, really smart script in general with the humor. And, and it goes back to that balance to me, you know what I mean? Um, it goes back to like the way that everything in it is tied to something else. When, He's talking to Detective Dwayne Robinson, the police guy, and he's getting mad because John is shooting out at the cars, right, to get their attention. And he's like, I've got people down here covered in glass. And John goes, glass? And his voice cracks. It's hilarious. Glass? And he's like, who gives a F about glass? Right? And of course, what's going to come and happen? Right? He's going to care about glass before the movie is over. And that's like a funny moment where he's getting kind of a, an upper hand, a laugh at the police officer's expense, but it's going to come back to be something very impactful um, and very real for him to deal with. And so I think it's just, I think it's just a brilliantly written show I know, or screenplay. I just don't, I, I don't know how it's all put together so meticulously in a way that is, it's very hard to be replicated. Uh, and I it's special. It is. There's a lot to it that can't be replicated as a whole. Um, part of the script that I found really appealing is the fact that it feels like the screenwriters were leaving a, a breadcrumb trail of different clues. As you mentioned earlier, the watch, the Rolex watch that ends up becoming the death of Hans. I mean, that's one that's set up early, but like you mentioned, these are things that aren't lingered upon. They're not the close-up shot of like, the watch will become important, so we need to make sure we pay attention. No, it's it's a treasure hunt, and it's a maze. And we get to go along that 
with John. The other thing that I thought was really well done with the screenwriters is maybe not intentionally, but at least somewhat subtly a commentary about the arrogance of law enforcement. How John, as a New York cop, is trying his hardest to get these people to listen. Hey, this is what's going on. And I love that he's on the party line. I love that, you know, he calls it the party line, but it's everybody, it's like, there's no secrets in this movie. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. And so he has to stay as incognito as he can within a public forum. <laughs> and when you see the cops show up and how they feel almost like offended that he has taken ownership, he's not supposed to be doing this. He's not, he's not in charge. We're in charge. It exposes them for who they actually are. And it's reinforced by that conversation that they have with Hans about how they're, they're, they're hoping that he's going to give them demands because that's what they know. And I think what the screenwriters do so well is they challenge that. They challenge the fact that, you know what? Cops may have our best interests at heart, but man, they can screw up and they can screw up because of their own arrogance, because they think they're the only ones in charge that nobody else can do their job. And you know what? Probably 60 to 70% of the time, that's probably true. But I think in this case, when you have something that is unpredictable, a situation that doesn't have a map, that doesn't have this, this roadmap that you can follow, which we know as the, as the omnipotent, omnipotent, omniscient audience, we know that they don't have all the information. We do. Of course, we can't help in the situation, but we see the law enforcement side acting out of just as much arrogance as Hans and his team because they think they have the answers. They think they know exactly what they are supposed to do. And what do they do? They send in big, giant vehicles to try to crash the building. And send in the car. Send in the car. <laughs> and what happens? He blows them up. He well, blows them. Yeah, he does. And, it, and it's such a great, you know, juxtaposition or dichotomy with John McClane because he is not out there trying to kill because he feels that it is going to prop him up or you know make people see him in a better light these guys are joyfully out there doing this job john is doing it because he has to because he has to to save other people and to stay alive but both the cops like you said it's an arrogance it's like oh i get to be in charge they're they're happy they're almost excited to get to be in this scenario like it's it's a thing whereas john is never excited about it. he's like it's all oh crap this is not good this is not what i want to be doing and it, it escalates from detective robinson and his you know naive naivety and his arrogance as the police to the kind of just grossness of the fbi guys at one point you know when they're flying around in the helicopter and it's Johnson and Johnson, of course, which is awesome. And he's like, you know, there's an estimate of about, you know, we're going to lose about 25% of the hostages. And he's like, I can live with that. And they're, they're totally okay with it. Right. And there's just, they don't care. Like, and he's like, just like F in Saigon, you know, like they're getting off on this event and what it could mean to them. John is not getting off on it. John wants it to be over and be done. He doesn't want to be part of this. He doesn't want to be stuck in the middle. They almost are thrilled to be stuck in the middle. Or almost they're almost envious of him. Yeah. And those subplots, those things that add to the story do so in a way that really reinforces that arrogance. And there's this reporter, uh Richard Thornburg, who his entrance felt a little out of place at first for me because I'm like, why do you need a reporter? I mean, yes, you do, but why give screen time to him? And watching it this time around, I realized that he's just as much a part of the problem. He wants to get famous by reporting on this story. He wants to be down there. He wants to get that truck down there and he wants to be the guy on the scene ready to, to do that, that first exclusive report. I think all of that goes just to further reinforce the fact that when you don't know everything, when you see what's happening in this building as an event and not as an opportunity to rescue 
or to be a part of the solution, it could potentially be a commentary on the fact that we are a people of spectators rather than participants. And then when we are participants, it's for our own selfish gain. And I think that's what makes characters like Argyle stand out, not only because of his humor, but because from the very beginning, he was on John's side for different reasons at the beginning. Hey, if it works out, give me a call. I'll hang in the parking deck until I hear from you. And, you know, he becomes this kind of kind of outlier through the whole movie. You know, he's sitting there talking to his girlfriend and he's watching the news. He's like, oh, my gosh, here's what's happening. And then the, he doesn't do anything spectacular. His his finale is when he comes around in this fiery burning wreck with his limo and John and his wife are they ride off into the sunset. But I think that I, I disagree. His finale, his moment is when he bum rushes Theo in the sure. car, okay. ram, rams him, and then runs up and punches him in the face. And then, of course, has to shake his hand out because he hit himself a little bit too hard. Okay, yeah. The, I digress. You're right. You're right. <laughs> but he represents what I think is the the best in us as the spectators. He sees what's going on. He's not looking for a trophy. He's not looking for an accolade. He's looking to save a guy that he's just become friends with, Aaron. I mean, he's known this guy for less than four hours, and he sees value in him. And I think that that's a great representation of what we could be. Again, I'm not going to try to read into that as deeply as as it needs to be, but I think that at the very least, I think you have a great contrast between him and and Thornburg in terms of they get to the scene for different reasons and they act on different reasonings. And the result of that, I think, just shows itself. Yeah, I mean, I love Argyle. I think Argyle is in the movie the perfect amount of time for a comedic relief character. Right. He's not someone who overstays his welcome. If we were cutting to him every 15 minutes to check in on him and see what he was doing, it would be too much. Just knowing that he's down there in the parking garage jamming out, kind of oblivious to what's going on. One of the only things in the movie I actually found this time around that took me out of it for literally 0.2 seconds was when they start shooting up the tower at the very beginning and John's like calls Argyle before the phones get cut. Right. Right. When that's happening. And he's like, can you hear that? And I'm like, dude, he's in the parking garage. Like he's not going to hear from the 30 or 40th floor, something in the parking garage. <laughs> um, that's not a thing. But yeah, we, we check in with him a couple times here and there, but you're right. It's just another great character who's just there to, it's a good dude who's in a situation and it's Christmas and he's being a good dude on Christmas. And John's a personable guy. There's no reason to hate him. Kind of wants to be nice to him because he looks like he could use a friend today. You know, he's going into a tough situation. He's going to hang out. And so he is awesome. And Thornburg is Thornburg. I mean, he is a great pairing to be a secondary minor little villain because he just represents the exploitation of the situation that is so realistic and is absolutely what would be happening in real life and what does happen in real life over and over and over again. And he's not the kind of guy you want to follow for the whole movie. You don't want to have all this time with him, but he gives you that other element of, look, you have a real true villain here, but you also have this creepy way of dehumanizing people that is not murdering them, but that we kind of allow through our media. And of course, Al is like your opposite to all of that. Al is just so awesome. And it is so great to see these two characters grow throughout this movie, the way that their relationship becomes from accidental, like two guys that are kind of feeling each other out to two guys who trust each other because they're all they have to two guys who ultimately are sticking up for each other to 
Al becoming the guy that John has this great moment that he says, look, it, you know, I need you to tell Holly this because I'm sitting up here and my feet are covered in glass and I'm starting to wonder if I'm going to make it out of this. And it's a really sweet is another almost connecting point that that whole paraphrase or that whole paragraph of dialogue that he says where he's like stumbling through the words it's not beautiful romantic shakespearean prose it's john mcclain words right he's like um and i uh should have been more supportive and um oh shit just uh yeah just uh tell her that she's the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me and you know you can feel you can really feel him trying to find the right words and al's like you tell her, you know, like, and he, but he believes in him and he gives him that confidence. And, and I think it's great because I think we relish the action hero that doesn't need anybody. That's a one man show that it can just get it done against all odds. John shows us real life, which is we do need people. I just rewatched Black Hawk Down tonight. Patrick, that entire movie is about one thing. Don't leave a man behind. It's about brothers. It's about people who are willing to get put down in the middle of a firefight against overwhelming odds in which they know that they are 99% certain going to die. But if they can protect that brother for five extra minutes and give him a single chance to get out of their life, like that is what they're going to do. That's what they care about. And that is what Al, in a sense, is a kind of version of for John people need each other we're human and that gives us that in this movie it's so different than most action movies absolutely having that connection with Al I think is something very important not only to their relationship obviously but for us because we needed John to connect with somebody outside of Holly we needed him to find a brother because he needed to be able to have that outlet and to know that both of these guys are cops. They're street cops. They come from different cities, but they understand each other. And from the very beginning, when Al has communication with John, he has to defend him to his superior. He's saying, this is the guy that's giving us eyes on what's happening in there. Even after his boss is saying, how do you know he's not a terrorist? He goes, I just know. He knows because he's a cop. He knows because he understands the world of being a cop and this guy sounds like a cop and we have to trust that we have to trust that Al knows what he's talking about. And the thing is, Aaron, because I, I, I know the actor and I grew up watching him ironically as a cop on a TV show called family matters, part of TGIF, a night of great comedy from, you know, one of the favorite networks on, on television. It was difficult for me to, when I was watching this, uh, the first time, to get around, you know, get my head around the fact that he's not a buffoon. He's not playing a comedic role. And by the end of the movie, I understand who he is because of how we get introduced to him. He goes, and this is one of those, again, great pieces of, of dialogue that uses humor to kind of express what we think is a real truth. And that's, He's in the convenience store. He's buying all these great little little Debbie snack cakes, and um, he's paying for it. And the he's, he's in his cop outfit, uh, cop uniform. And the guy says, he gives him his total, and he says, "They're for my wife." And he goes, "Mm-hmm, okay." He says, "She's pregnant with our firstborn." It's like, all right. And then he gives the guy behind the counter this look, like, "You don't know anything," and it's almost as if he's telling me, "You don't know anything." Because of what we see later on, the fact is he does have a wife and a a baby on the way. There's that just tender conversation with him and John about their families, and it's it's just really beautiful and it's unexpected in a movie like this. But again, I think it's necessary for the overall story because it continues to allow us to stay connected, not only to John, but the connection that he has allows us to connect with that as well. And I think it's just really, really great. The big question before we get into our connecting point is one that has plagued the world since 1988. Are we really going to do this? 
or not. I'm going to ask another question instead. <laughs> Most people ask the question, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? But since what, we all know it is, we're just going to skip right over that. The actual question I want to ask is why it's set during the holiday season. I mean, couldn't this have been just as successful over Fourth of July weekend or on a random Friday night where there's a big celebratory party going on for this big company? What do you think? I don't know. Maybe that's not how the book sequel that this is based on was written. Maybe that's why. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I, I think that it being set at Christmas gives it an additional ex- – it matters more thematically because we're dealing with the idea of reunification of families. That's what happens at Christmas. Yeah. People giving for each other. Um, and, and it's a time of joy and of happiness and people are worry free. And so it makes perfect sense that this would be the time you would want to do this. Right. I mean, it, from both a logistical standpoint on the terrorist side, the robber's side, and also the lower manned function of the police and, you know, FBI, et cetera, no, they're going to be less on their toes than they would necessarily because some of them are going to be at home with their families. Mm -hmm. And I think that it gives more weight to Holly and Bruce reuniting. And so it just brings all of the relationships that are really well done on their own together thematically and ties them into this season and this seasonal aspect of us caring about one another and family that makes it actually, I'll say it again, special that takes it to that extra place that I don't, I don't think it would have been quite as good without that. No. Yeah. I think the agency of the holiday season really amplified everything that we enjoy about the movie. I don't think it's because it takes place during Christmas. I think the fact that it does take place during Christmas allows more believability to the things that we attach ourselves to as an audience. Excellent. My friend. Well, Connecting point time. Did you have one? Well, of course I had one. I mean, <laughs> we've been we've been hit or miss when it comes to our connecting points. I, I basically crapped on yours last week, and because I didn't have one, and it's messed up. I know it was so bad. Um, so bad when when Hans falls from the tower, did you know, Patrick, that Alan Rickman was intent on doing his own stunts for this? Doesn't surprise me. And they actually let him go from up high during this stunt and he plummeted down several stories into a big blue beanbag unknowingly and so that reaction on his face is a one take it is the actual view of him freaking the heck out and thinking that he was falling to his death that's the reason it looks so perfect and so believable (laughs) because it's not acting like he was just dropped they let him go um, and it, it turned out great. That's not my connecting point, but that's thought, a little <laughs> note that I had to get in there. Well, my connecting point is endings is all I'm going to say. And I, I think I just love how this story wraps everything up and all of these relationships that we've been talking about. After Hans dies, John is coming out of Nakatomi Tower with Holly. He's wrapped in a blanket. And if I had to condense it all to one piece of the ending, it would be this. And that is he and Al seeing each other for the first time. And it's against the norm, right? It's not the action hero seeing the woman and running up to the woman and being in this incredible embrace. It's these two dudes who just went through this traumatic experience together, one on the ground and one way up high in completely different ways who realize the importance of each other. And it is, it is beautiful moment. Like they smile and the camera lingers and lets us wait on them while they just smile at each other. And they, they start to laugh because they're guys and that's what we do to try and deflect our emotions. And then they hug each other and they're crying and it is pure and so innocent the way that they connect in that moment. And I, I love it. And then we get after that the 
person asking Holly what her name is, and she says Holly McLean, and you get to see John's reaction and the incredible amount of joy that he takes from her claiming his name. You and I always talk about the importance of names, and it was a very big deal for him. Obviously, going back to that moment I talked about where he gets really pissed off that she's still using Gennaro because it means something. And here she chooses his name, and that is, it's like, uh, it's so worth it to him, right? And then we get the cheesiest moment of the entire movie, the one completely out of, in a sense, out of place moment, which is Carl, who, another tidbit you might want to know, was a ballet dancer when he was discovered and brought on to play this role. What? Balladeer. <laughs> yeah, that's just weird. Um, <laughs> but he did great, you know, but he, you know, does the typical action movie thing where he comes out of the covering after, you know, he's presumed dead with his machine gun and we get the amazing hero moment for Al who gets to pull his gun despite having trauma and he gets to save the day. And I don't care, Patrick. I don't care if it's dumb because it's dumb. It's really dumb. But it is so satisfying because I want that for Al so much. Al has gone through all of this stuff on the ground, not being a part of it. And he ends up overcoming his own demons and becomes an equal part of this story in every way. And I, I just think it's amazing the way that it works out. And, and I think that part of it is because they don't linger on that too long. It's quick. They don't make it a big deal. It just happens and it's done. And then right after that, we get Argyle coming up, like you talked about, crashing through the gate, rolling up to get John and Holly. And before they leave, Holly punching stupid McStupid face reporter Richard Thornburg in the face and saying that amazing line to the camera. Did you get that? Or he says, did you get that? You know, because that's the whole thing. And it, it's great, man. It is really, really great. I think it is the perfect kind of coda to this film. It puts these little fun bows on each of these stories in a really quick manner instead of taking five minutes to like wrap up all these stories like so many movies try to do. And then off they go into the, I would say sunset, but I guess it's almost more like a sunrise at this point with the song Let It Snow playing. So if you ever had a question, Die Hard is a freaking Christmas movie. It ends with the song Let It Snow, Never Forget. And now everybody should go watch Die Hard 2 because it is also an amazingly awesome movie and doesn't get enough love, and I'm done. Preach. Now? All right. Well, that was probably the most satisfying way to finish off your connecting point that I've heard. And I love the fact that you mentioned that it was your connecting point was satisfying. And that's the only way I can describe my connecting point, which as you read through the notes, you give me dirty looks like, how could you do this? This is crazy. Are you a sick person? Because I wrote Ellis's death. <laughs> I still think you're a sick person. Well, and, and I'll tell you why. A murderer is my connecting point. It really is in this point. <laughs> it all begins with that great speech that he gives Hans. He comes in and it's where this arrogance really lives outside of our two main characters he comes in to convince Hans that he is just as suave, just as cool, just as collective as Hans is. That he can actually compete verbally on the same level as Hans. And I love that Hans is sitting back and just saying, tell me more. Tell me more. Knowing that this is not going to end well for you. Of course, the biggest thing that it's got going for it is the line, Hans, booby. That Yiddish expression that I believe was ad-libbed, it says so much about the way in which Ellis is posturing himself to think that he can actually get away with what he's doing. Something he says just before that or just after, he compares himself to Hans by saying, what you do with a machine gun, I do with the pen. As if he's saying that we are the same person. And Aaron, you're rolling your eyes because that's how everybody in the audience is feeling. And what happens here is that it's just the perfect exposition to get you ready to say, okay, Ellis, it's not if you're going to die. We're anxious to see how he's going to do it. Is he going to be creative or is he just going to blow you away? <laughs> and to me, that's satisfying because he is a great, um, he's a great mustache twirling villain. He's, 
he's flat, but he's flat for the sake of entertainment value. And every once in a while, my connecting point doesn't have to be something that's emotionally evocative. It's just a lot of fun because humor and laughter, these are things that are expressive uh, of, of emotions. And so when he's doing his thing and then John gets on the CB with Hans and John's like, stop talking, stop talking. And then you hear a pop on the other side of that CB. You're like, cha-ching. And at that point, I was like, yeah, I think of the entire movie, that's probably one of the more satisfying moments for me. Not because I like death. At least I hope that's not how I'm coming across. But the fact that what we get is what we expected to get, but it feels so satisfying. It doesn't feel cheap. It feels like if we're going to get Ellis offed, we at least need to set him up to be this guy who deserves it. And he doesn't have a lot of screen time. And so I think it says a lot about the actor and being able to just chew up the scenery whenever he is on screen. So that whole speech that he gives, the way in which he interacts with Hans sets up that moment where his uh, his death makes it a perfect ending for him. Yep. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I promise I'm not. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and just say we're done with this episode so I don't get myself in trouble. <laughs> Why would you get in trouble? I don't know. I, maybe I'm incriminating. I'm going to plead the fifth at this point. Okay. Well, if you're <laughs> going to promote our bonus content, make sure you direct people to go become a member of said program in which they can get bonus content. Yes. Well, there is bonus content coming right after this. And the reason it's bonus is it's only for the special people that support us on patreon.com. If you want to be a part of that, be a part of the voting that takes place uh, with our patrons who donate their votes. They donate money for votes to get to vote on our monthly donor pick uh, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash film to find out more. You can uh, support us for as little as a dollar a month and get access to really great content like what they're about to hear uh, here shortly. The end of the year is upon us, and that means that our annual end of the year episode is right around the corner. Uh, next week, in fact. There you will hear our thoughts on our favorite actors and actresses from this last year, our favorite feel and film episodes. And what we're looking forward to in the new year, among everything else. It'll be packed with some really great stuff, so you don't want to miss that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.